Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, why not consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. Subscribers to the Arab Digest newsletter will know that through this week, we're examining, on its 10th anniversary, the 2013 coup in Egypt. My guest today is Magid Mandur. Magid is a political analyst and regular contributor to Arab Digest, Middle East Eye, and Open Democracy. He's also a writer for Sada, the Carnegie Endowment online journal. Magid is the author of an upcoming book, Egypt Under Sisi, published by I.B. Torres, which will examine the social and political developments in Egypt since the coup of 2013. Magid, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Happy uh, to be back, as usual. Now, all this week, Arab Digest is interrogating the coup of the 3rd of July 2013 that overthrew Mohamed Morsi, Egypt's only democratically elected president. Let me begin uh, with you, Magid, though, with the revolution, Tharawa, 25th of January 2011. Where were you and what did it mean to you? Well, I wasn't actually in the country. I had already left in 2008. I was 24, actually, at at the time to study. And the plan at the time was that I am never coming back. Um, So I was basically one of the victims of Mubarak. There was this idea in my mind, like this kind of sense of very slow decay, that is setting in uh, everywhere. And in my 20s, I realized that I just can't continue to, to, to live my life like this. So as many people do, I tried to get out and I was successful. Um, so I moved to Europe, I think it was in summer 2008. And then when the revolution happened, I literally could not believe what I was seeing. It was something very uh, dreamlike, and it was very, uh, let's say, um, transformative to me. Before that, I was political, but I wasn't overtly political. There was kind of this sense of heavy despair in basically all aspects. Uh, Mubarak seemed uh, eternal. And I didn't really think that those small protest movements will bleed to anything, basically. I was I was very uh, pessimistic, and <laughs> it does seem to be a characteristic of mine. So I didn't really see any change happening. So it was an extreme shock, but a beautiful shock. I would say it was one of the happiest weeks of my life. Um, and as uh, Edward Said, I think, once said, there are people that are um, the fathers, the mothers, and the sons of of uh, political uh, uh, changes and movements. And I'm definitely the son of the revolution, for sure, mm. uh, because I could see the changes happening around me. Mm. And did you think, OK, I'm going to get back there and partake of that? Or did you still feel a hesitation? 
Absolutely. Um, so after the three weeks, I was one of the people also that was extremely naive. And I thought, okay, we got this lockdown, everything's going to be great now. <laughs> so I was under the illusion that I would like to go back. And I had um, already thought of a plan that I would, but then it immediately turned sour. Um, so the massacres basically uh, started to happen very quickly. Uh, the violence basically uh, started to to um, spread. There was still hope, but it became clear that there will be a very intense struggle, uh, which it seemed that the camp that I, um, let's say, identified with was not prepared to wage. So then the thought was, let's wait a bit and see how it works. Um, then I waited till uh, 2013 and the coup happened. And then ironically is then when I really decided to get uh, involved and I started to write. And I think my first uh, article came out maybe two, three days after the massacres in um, uh, Rabat. That massacre, 14th of August, 2013, hundreds and hundreds killed in Cairo by forces under the command of General Sisi. But let me take you back to before the massacre, to the day of the coup. What were your thoughts? What were you thinking when you heard about the coup? Did that old pessimistic maggot pop up and say, see, I told you so. Yes, to a certain extent. And then I was getting more and more politically aware. And it became clear to me that a massacre is about to happen. Um, so it seems that a head-on uh, collision was going to take place between the uh, the Brotherhood and um, the military. And at the time, I only look at and explain as a mass frenzy. The polarization was extremely high. Propaganda was at a very high, absurd level. Um, and the military was basically amassing this wide popular support to commit a mass act of uh, violence. And that was my personal motivation to start to get involved because I was discussing with friends of mine and they were debating going down to delegate Sisi because he was asking at the time for... A, a delegation or authorization to fight what he called terrorism. And it was clear that that meant that he was going to go into the sit-ins and he's going to kill a lot of people. And I knew if that happened, that was basically the beginning of the complete end of this democratic experience. And he was extremely intelligent in the way that he did it because he solicited popular support in a way so that everybody is is somehow engaged into his um, narrative. And that was the motivation for me to write my first ever article to kind of argue against that logic and that if this happens, this is the end. And if he wipes out the brotherhood, then everybody else will follow. Um, there was this very naive belief that the military is going to take over, then there will be democratic elections on the bodies of the victims of uh, the military's oppression. So this was very naive. But at the time of the coup, there were, as you mentioned, the street protests against Mohamed Morsi. And there did appear to be popular support for uh, El-Sisi, who was then, uh, uh, at the time of the coup, as defense minister. 
was there popular support then and 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 how do you understand that that support i mean it's really sad to say but yes there was and it wasn't uh, isolated or limited it was widespread popular support but to understand it we have to take a bit of a nuanced view so the popular support had multiple reasons first of all the brotherhood's failure in its year in power um the incompetence was very uh, obvious but worst the policy that they followed was that we will try to appease the deep state in the hopes that we can somehow maintain power so they weren't acting as if they were a ruling party and in that way they basically allowed the deep state to come back so rather than kind of create a broad coalition with uh, the secular forces the liberals the leftists to try to oppose the military the logic was to sideline their competition and try to monopolize as much power as they can while at the same time appeasing the security um apparatus they were also a very conservative socially conservative party uh, which created some fear that there would be religious rule. Uh, they allied themselves with the Salafists to a certain extent, which also created this fear that they will kind of impose into the social freedoms that many in the uh, Egyptian, let's say, um, urban middle class appreciate. So there was palpable fear from the rule of the Brotherhood. At the same time, we don't like it was very clear as well that when there was a democratic opening, a lot of Egyptians realized that we're not a homogeneous block, that we're not all Muslim, Sunni, conservative, male dominated way of thinking. And there is an LG, uh, LGBTQ plus <laughs> community. There are atheists, there are Baha'is, there are so many identities in the country. And that was very perplexing for a lot of people. Um, so the idea that the military would basically take over and end all of this social turmoil in one stroke. So it wasn't just about the brotherhood and they're going to destroy um, the country. That was a, a part of it. But there is a faction, a big faction in the country that is extremely conservative and wants to maintain this idea of national organic homogeneous unity at all costs, including mass state violence. And that's where the support as well um, comes from. Sisi had a very clear appeal, which is you will back me and I will take power and all of this social turmoil is going to disappear. Um, there was uh, also fear that the state is going to collapse, we're going to end up like Iraq or uh, uh, Syria. So it was a complex dynamic of basic fear of the challenges to the identity, to the political stability, to the idea of religious rule. And he was able to capitalize on that quite well. And he was able to build this narrative of I am saving the country from itself and from its own people. So 
that worked really, really, really well for actually many years. So it wasn't just during the coup. He was very popular for three or four years afterwards. And it only started to collapse after it became clear that all of the promises that he made of national restoration is not really going to happen. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? As you say, very skillful in in putting that message out that he was the salvation of 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 a wider Egypt that the Muslim Brotherhood were a threat to that wider Egypt. He combines that with hard force, the the massacre at Rabah. It's clear that he's prepared to use force. Uh, people seemingly, as you say, accept that at least for the first few years, but. Let me ask you this, because I, I'm thinking back myself to the coup. And at the time, I remember there was a hesitancy uh, in the West and among certain media outlets to even call it a coup. They, they seem to be somewhat perplexed about that. And, and I wanted to ask you about the response of Western governments. How would you characterize it? Was it apathy, an act of betrayal, or perhaps something darker that the West wanted to see another Egyptian dictator in place. Egyptian democracy, flawed though it was, made Western governments nervous. I think the Western response was very perplexed and uh, uh, confused. The Western goal at the time was to maintain uh, stability in the country. And for a period of time, it seemed that the Brotherhood would be the only civilian political force that can deliver that. And there was no objection to this. So it wasn't that there was fear of uh, an Islamist takeover. But also, the military was the core of the uh, Mubarak regime. And it's a very close ally to the West. We just have to remember that Egypt receives 1.3 billion uh, a year from the U.S. in military aid since 1979. So that's a massive investment. Um, so the relationship is very close. And when it became clear that the military will basically take over, there was resignation in the West that this is how it is. Those are the old faces. And we can work with those people. Having said that, after the coup happened, the consolidation of the regime would not have been possible in the way that it happened without international support. And I'm talking about lavish international support. The regime has received billions in aid from the Gulf, uh, arms, uh, as well as a surveillance system to, to uh, let's say, repress dissent. So once it became clear that the military is now in control. Support just poured in. Also, um, politically, there was no sanction at all uh, for the uh, abuses. So there was a recognition that, okay, he might be a bit unsavory, but he's the guy that will deliver for us. So we will work with him. And this logic seems to continue 10 years after the coup, even that it has now become clear that Sisi cannot deliver in his promise for um, stability. Yeah, that's the message is as ever. Stability is more important, much more important than any democratic endeavor. And uh, we in the West will take the stability 
and set aside democracy because we think that serves our interests. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Egyptian writer and analyst, Magid Mandur. You've probably noticed, or maybe not, that our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. You write regularly for Arab Digest with great acumen and insight about the economy, and you've touched on this a little bit, but let's, let's delve down more. The terrible mess that the Sisi regime has driven the Egyptian economy into. If I were to ask you what cause above all others has wrecked the Egyptian economy, what would your answer be, Magadha? So I would say we would also need to take a step back to look at the politics behind. So when the military took over, they decided that they will create a new form of regime in the country in a clear break with anything that we have ever seen before. This regime is a very radical, maximalist regime. Um, so it's not correct to compare it to the Mubarak regime, Sadat, or to Nasser. They were following a very clear logic, which is the full militarization of the state and the uh, economy with the final goal of accumulating as much power as they can while eliminating any sort of a competing civilian force. And that's what they did. And that became very clear in the economy. So they simply borrowed way too much money without correct feasibility studies or actually understanding of how the uh, or how the uh, economy works and and they've invested billions into this large mega projects without clear returns this logic only worked as long as they could just borrow more and roll over the debt but when the ukraine war happened and there was a bit of a, a credit let's say lack of supply, so they couldn't really borrow as much as they wanted to anymore, it all kind of caved in. So now Egypt is facing a very deep uh, economic crisis. There is a severe shortage of uh, uh, dollars, which means that inflation is going through the roof. The pound lost about half of its value, and it will lose even more. And uh, it seems that Sisi doesn't really have a solution to the problem because his uh, allies in the Gulf are now not willing to give him what they gave him before. Um, so the estimations is that he's received about $100 billion over the past 10 years, which is a massive amount. And it seems that they're just not willing to do that because he's also not delivering what he said he would. The country is not very stable and he didn't support the Gulf in Yemen or in Syria or even in Libya to the extent that he was expected to. Um, so he has been kind of a disappointment for them. And all what he can do is to try to blackmail them by saying, OK, if I go, think of what will happen to you. But the fear of the brotherhood now is not as it was before. 
So the regime is in a very difficult position because also the idea of reforming the economy and demilitarizing it is very unlikely because in order to do that, then he has to go against his own base because there is no civilian ruling party anymore. So he can't, he doesn't have another civilian power to balance out the military. So he seems to be stuck in a very tight spot and I can't see a way that he's going to make it out without a lot of pain. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's uh, really not looking very good. Yeah, well, he's as you say, he's he's uh, cornered, really, doesn't have any more options. But of course, it's the Egyptian people who pay the, the heaviest price for his mismanagement, his extraordinary mismanagement of the Egyptian economy. I'm thinking, you know, Magid, you and Dina Waba, Hassam Al-Hamalawi, and Atif Said, you're all, I'm very proud to say, part of our Egypt Week. You are also all talented, committed, courageous, and determined. And there's one other thing you share. You are all out of your homeland. How hard is that for you? And what does it say about Egypt? I mean, I look at it and think, what a loss. There are so many others just like you four, who could be building this new Egypt, one that's free of the dictatorships, one that's free of a militarized economy, and yet you're outside the country. How hard is that? Uh, Very. Uh, (laughs) So I think I was in Spain, I think it was a year ago, and I was looking at a quote uh, which said, exile is a sickness of the soul. Uh, that was about the uh, Spanish uh, exiles uh, from Franco. And it, it's very accurate. So it's very difficult, of course. Uh, and it's always present somehow. Um, I mean, I'm in a good uh, situation, but you're marginalized where you are. You're looking at things from afar. Um, you know that for many people uh, back home, you are the villain somehow. You're the one that is that is the uh, stabilizing um especially at the height of the dictatorship when he was very popular it was a very difficult position to take to say no this is wrong uh, not just because of fear from the authority but because repression was so decentralized that normal people were somehow participating in it so it was a very difficult position to take it remains a very difficult one but I think considering everything, considering what we've seen, it is the only position that I could personally take with uh, a clear conscience. So I think it's a massive loss uh, as well because we're not alone. There are, I don't know how many, but at least thousands that have fled and the best are leaving the country. Um, so the future looks bleak. But on the upside of this is that living in exile um, allows me at least to have the space to think, to write, to contemplate. And maybe if things change at some point, we would be better prepared for what is to come. Mm. So this freedom from direct repression is a benefit. But at the personal level, of course, the cost is extremely high for everyone. A tough question, Magid. Is there a future for democracy in Egypt? 
Well, I mean, I hope there is. Um, and I don't want to quote too much, but Gramsci once said it's optimism of the will and the pessimism of the mind, um, which is a quote that I really like. Uh, so I'm rationally, let's say, pessimistic to some extent because I think the hurdles now created by the regime after a decade are extremely hard to overcome. Uh, the regime has restructured the state in a way that will make it very difficult to change and reform. And the uh, economy is a mess and the mess is going to last for years and it won't be something that has a, a really quick fix. So the road ahead is bumpy and long. And I'm not really talking about a year or two. I'm talking about decades of hard, persistent work to basically fix the mess that the regime has left behind. But it's not hopeless. Uh, of course, there is always some hope. And I think things will eventually get better. But my fear is that the next few years, it will get much worse, considering the state of the economy and the regime's success in uh, eliminating all civilian political forces. And I mean all, almost all. And that would not have been possible without the mass popular support that uh, the regime uh, enjoyed in, um, in the beginning. So all of those are things that the people of Egypt will have to reckon with. It won't be a quick fix, something that will happen quickly. So it, it's, it's a very complex process, but it will be possible, but I think it's going to take longer than this idea that there will be mass uh, protests, two weeks, regime falls, elections, everything is great. This will not happen, unfortunately. Mm. Um, it's going to be a very long struggle. And I think that's one of the lessons that we should take away from uh, the past uh, decade and the failures of the revolution. Well, it's good to hear that determination and the optimism. And you're right that it is going to be a long struggle. But you need to look at it pragmatically, don't you? Um Finally, Maggot, you are hard at work on your book. What's it called? And give us a snapshot of what is it about? It is about and when we can expect to see it on the bookshelves. Thank you. Um, so uh, it is now done. So it should be on the bookshelves on the anniversary of the revolution, which I always think is a good sign. <laughs> uh, so uh, next January uh, on the 25th is the uh, release date. It is uh, called Egypt under CC. The book basically uh, is based on a decade of research and it's looking at the consequences uh, of the coup and the system and the regime that uh, CC has uh, built. I basically uh, argue that the regime is radically different from uh, what uh, preceded it and that it constructed a new ideological edifice as well as changes in the uh, state structure and the, uh, and the economy that will make it difficult and a very long task to democratize um, and that it will not be uh, an easy process. And I try to kind of look at how the regime used violence to do that and how 
violence is basically embedded and endemic in the regime. I also uh, argue that the regime has built a structure that is very reform resistant. So the idea that the regime can somehow reform itself, it's very difficult to see looking at the structures there because there is no civilian party, uh, there is no competing power center, and the elites are all supporting the project uh, until the end. Uh, which, of course, makes it very difficult uh, to reform. Um, I say that the regime is willing to use whatever means it has to remain in power. Um, so the idea that over the long term things might change, I'm very skeptical of that without a popular mobilization. Can I just ask you one more one more question, Megan? Absolutely. To those who are exiled, to those in the diaspora, but also to, to young Egyptians, what would you say to them right now? What's, what's the message that you would give them? The message is to hold on. The struggle is long, and it's not impossible, but it's long, and it's hard, and it's not easy. And there is no fairy tale ending to this. There were some very romantic ideas of how things will change and how things will be better instantly. And that was one of the reasons for our very quick failure. Um, there was the logic, okay, Mubarak now resigned, everything is great, but we're looking at deep structural changes and deep social changes. If we want Egypt to become a truly democratic place, then it will be a very long struggle and we have to understand. And that's very important as well because that's not in let's say the national psyche, the idea that the Egyptians are one homogeneous block of 100 million people that share the same belief systems is a complete fallacy. It is a complete fabrication. Egypt is a large country that ha that is very diverse, that has different views, different sectors, different classes, and Democracy is about managing those differences. It's not about unity. We don't need this kind of idea that everybody is the same and everybody holds the same belief system. And once we accept that, then there is a path forward that we can be different without um, uh, repressing each other. And uh, that's actually a uh, key. And as well that even though if, for example, you live in Cairo in a nice flat or if you're middle class, Egypt is a big country. There's a lot of poor people. There are a lot of demands and there is a lot of injustice there. And that would take a long time to fix. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Maggot. And <laughs> right, Bill. 25th, 25th of January next year, the, your book is out. Uh, we'll look for it. I'll be looking for it. And um, I thank you again for our conversation today. Thank you so much, Bill. Happy to be there. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the political analyst and writer, Magid Mandur. Magid is the author of an upcoming book, Egypt Under Sisi, published by Ibitoris, which will examine the social and political developments in Egypt since the coup of 2013. It's coming out 25th of January next year, the day that honors the revolution, Tarwa, in Egypt. Keep an eye out for it. 
I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since we launched three years ago, it's been listened to nearly 150,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You'll no doubt have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Magid. And when you're there, you can find out more about our Egypt Week coverage. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 150 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.